My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Dave Delaney hosts a great podcast called The Nice Podcast. Dave, tell us what these fine folks will get out of listening. Thanks for asking. Uh, The Nice Podcast is all about helping leaders improve the way they communicate with their team members, with their prospects, with their colleagues, everybody. So that's what it's all about. Amazing. Where can people subscribe? The places that you subscribe to podcasts normally. Um, But you can also find the show at marketingpodcast.net, of course. And you can also visit nicepodcast.co. You heard him, folks. Go subscribe. Artificial intelligence is remaking marketing as we speak. And if you're a marketer, you can either get up to speed or get left behind. The choice is yours and, really, it's a no-brainer. Join Jeff Livingston and Greg Verdino as they explore the latest AI news, trends, tools, and ideas that are creating the future of marketing today. This is No Brainer, an AI podcast for marketers. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, yes, I am an AI. Take it away, Jeff and Greg. Hi, everybody. This is Jeff Livingston, and welcome to the No Brainer Podcast. I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Greg Verdino. Hey, Jeff. How's it going today? Very good, sir. Good to see you. I like your haircut. So you have to be watching on YouTube to get that joke, folks. And speaking of, we are on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and everywhere that you get podcasts. Please be sure to follow us. And if you are on iTunes, please give us a rating. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. And so with that, let's kick it off, Mr. Greg. Hello, sir. How are you? So if you've been paying any attention, I'm sure you've seen uh, former Googler Jeffrey Hinton making the rounds. So uh, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, perhaps you're not on the AI hype train the way a lot of other folks are. So Jeffrey Hinton is a, a gentleman who has been called by many a godfather of AI. There's obviously many different scientists, including many women, but I don't hear anyone calling anyone a godmother of AI, but many scientists, data scientists, AI developers who have been instrumental in building the technologies that have formed the foundation for the large language models that everybody is hyping and buzzing about today. So over the course of the past couple of weeks, one of the big stories has been that this godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton, uh, who had previously been employed by Google, put in his resignation. And the reason he chose to resign from Google is he felt it would give him a greater ability to speak about what he's come to see as the existential threat of artificial intelligence. So he's been out on the circuit. And he's not surprising. I think like a lot of, a lot of AI scientists, I think 
has been talking about the long-term implications of essentially sentient AI, or at least artificial general intelligence. Will it run away from us? Is there a potential, which he believed there is, that uh, the AI smarter than human, a human might, you know, ultimately make a decision to eliminate humankind, right? A lot of this is hand waviness, right? If you, if you talk to a lot of the AI, the matrix, right? Right. You talk to the AI ethics people and they're like, why are we worried about some science fiction when the reality is today we have artificial intelligence that's nowhere near human capabilities in most areas, but is full of bias, underrepresents certain markets or certain populations, could potentially result in lots of disinformation, could result in near-term job loss, things like that. Why are we worrying about like some Terminator scenario? But what's really interesting about this is that you know, obviously because of who he is and the fact that he came out of Google, he's been all over the media and everyone right. loves the doomsday story, right? Right. Like we were talking before, right? And it is a coincidence that it came out right before Google I.O., right? Which is their big AI developer conference. It's this week. I I don't know. I don't know. But go ahead. Let's get to him. What's interesting. Before we trash him. Right. Well, (laughs) uh, well, that's where I'm going right now. Yeah, man. I'm sure he's a very smart man. I'm sure he means well. I know right. a lot a lot of people involved in the development of AI are concerned about both near and long-term risk. But what sure. to me is interesting and frustrating is you watch the interviews and and trust me the interviewers, right, the you know media personalities who are speaking to this guy aren't doing anybody any favors because they're kind of doing the what's an AI kind of, you know, clown show. Right. But plus they like the headline, right? The headline's great for their, for their clicks. I mean, they're benefiting from this just as much as they would say from a certain political person that likes to create very dramatic and somewhat toxic headlines. I don't know who that guy might be, but I, I have no idea. But what, what's frustrating about all of this is he's, raising concerns about an issue. And now this is a guy who has been working in artificial intelligence for what, 30, 40 years, right? Sure. And he's kind of, he's kind of soured on it and it has become sort of an AI, an AI doomer. But other than raising the issue, he's not actually offering anything of substance. He's not talking about what he believed as a solution. Like he doesn't believe in a pause, right? He didn't sign right. the letter. He doesn't believe a pause makes sense. He doesn't believe it's practical. He's concerned about what happens if, you know, U.S. companies pause. How do you get Chinese companies to pause? They're not going to, right? You know, so, you know, he's like, that's not practical. That's not a solution, but he offers no solutions to the challenge, which is interesting, you know, from the perspective of, you know, a prominent voice in the space making a lot of noise about something with really no practical near-term implications or action plan. Well, on top of it, he's probably locked down on some brutal NDA, which he can't say anything. Right. And, well, you know, we know it, that he's yeah, he's he's being very, I'll say, political and he's sta- cautious. Any statements he makes about Google, right? He oh, he, Google's he, been ethical. Google's exactly. been ethical. I've read it. He's maintaining right. He's maintaining they've been reasonably responsible. He's grown concerned. Uh, right. Since they got into the race with Microsoft and OpenAI, but he's not pointing a finger directly back at them. But still, I wouldn't think that would preclude him from having at least an idea to share 
about how he, with all of this experience, all of this inside knowledge, would would approach the issue that he's flagging, but he's not. He's just waving his hands around. Right. Um, That's like saying that poverty is terrible and we shouldn't have homeless people without doing anything about it, which is also a very difficult problem that isn't going away. I mean, and even though it's completely different, socioeconomic, obviously, the the similarities are that they're both problems that are not going to go away because AI is not going to go away. And there are going to be impacts, some of which we're going to talk about today, including the job loss thing, which is our big focus today, since it seems to be happening a little bit now. And people are stupid afraid about that. And they should be, right? I mean, it's a reasonable fear when you start seeing articles about ChatGPT replacing this or Audible using AI to read books now and, and things like that. So that that's a real concern. What isn't helpful, though, is this what I call the Hollywood meme, the dystopian future. And forgive me, because one of my graduate papers in Georgetown was on dystopian technology memes in Hollywood and how culturally we use this to create a fear and repress technology in some ways. And and to me, I think that what we're seeing is rapid change. People don't like rapid change. And as a result of that, it creates a huge five alarm, seven alarm, nine alarm fire. And I want to keep the issues when I talk about it as reasonable as possible and as fixable as possible. And that includes like retraining people or encouraging people to embrace the tools so they don't get outsourced or replaced these kinds of issues. So when I I hear what he's saying, give me an answer. Give me something to work with. Show me a way, even if it's Asimov's robotic laws, right? Yeah. Do something like other than like, well, the AI will keep us around and keep it running for a while until they figure out how to replace us there too. Okay. Thank you, Neo. <laughs> you know, and it is interesting, right? Because was it earlier this year or last year, Blake Lamayani, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, right? But he was another Google AI scientist who, he's the one that came out and said he believed he was seeing signs of sentience in uh, the language model that Google was developing and was immediately terminated. Right. And right. You know, he, another one where like, really is the AI really sentient? Are you sure about that? Because it shouldn't be anywhere near that just yet based on what it is. You know, a lot of, to a large extent, a lot of people involved deeply in artificial intelligence believe that large language models are in fact an off ramp from artificial general intelligence that you're not going to end up at AGI with a large language model that there are other ways to get there. And this isn't one of them. But, you know, like when you think about what really works well with AI, it's usually a narrow application, right? So something very specific. And so when I see these large conversations about ChatGPT ruining the world, it's really how you use it. Maybe if you implement it in a very narrow way, what concerns me most about AI, just to be candid, is military AI. Like if you actually start do you remember RoboCop, the new one, like sure. the one that everybody hated? And you remember the whole premise of that one was that they deployed the robot and on the front line in military situations. And to me, like that's much scarier where you have a an AI go on rogue in a situation like that. But you know, the reality is, is I, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. So we'll see. We'll see. But we, now we know one way to lose your job, which is to quit your AI company or work at an AI company and tell everybody how bad AI is. 
Right, right. Which, you know, that even goes back to like 2020. Another, you know, it feels like all these Googlers whose names I can't pronounce, like, is it Timrit Gebru? You know, she yeah. made, you know, she made headlines back in 2020 when, you know, she wasn't talking about sci-fi doomsday scenarios. She was a signatory or a co-author of the stochastic parrots paper, right? That keeps coming up. I feel like on every, not, not the letter, but the original stochastic parrot paper. You know, she co-wrote that with Emily Bender and simply the fact that she raised issues regarding fairness and bias and the digital divide and whether AI might exacerbate it, simply that got her fired from Google, right? So if nothing else, I suppose speaking out about AI is in fact a way to lose your job, at least in the tech industry. Okay. You know, I work in open AI. I don't like chat GPT. But, but, but you know what? Sam Altman says, says that much, right? You know, he's, you know, he's another one who's, you know, gone on, you know, on, you know, on the media has done pre the press tour and at the, you know, out of one side of his mouth is talking about how if you don't get aboard the AI train, you're going to be left behind and, you know, and, you know, that'll be catastrophic for you personally. Uh, the other side of his mouth, he's saying, but this is going to be really damaging to society and the economy and it may bring the end of capitalism. And, you know, and then, then, then he also goes, but I don't know what to do about it. Who could possibly control this? It's like, I don't know, yeah. Sam. Who do you think? <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 he's definitely a media, shall we say, he likes the limelight. Let's leave it at that before I say something that I will regret. I do think, though, it's a, it's a good transition point to talk about jobs. Let's talk about like something that can really potentially happen, why it would happen, and what people can do about it. And that's the displacement issue where AI comes in and creates jobs, but maybe your old skill set is no longer relevant. Yeah, right. Um, we've, you know, because we've certainly seen, you know, some, you know, in, you know, even just reports, right? You know, reports, studies, and so forth, you know, from both, you know, academic institutions and for-profit institutions that point to the risk. And these are not brand new, obviously, for months now people have been talking about ai's report that was co-written with i believe wharton is that correct yeah yeah you know where they you know out of jobs right yeah they did a fairly large study of sort of the in, the early impact of generative ai on the labor market and found that 80 percent or some you know some odd number of you know jobs 80 percent of jobs will be impacted by generative ai Impacted by generative AI doesn't mean eliminated by generative right. AI, but there are a number of jobs that would appear to be so significantly impacted by generative AI that you almost have to assume they would disappear. If you're in a job where, you know, 70, 80, 100% of your task can be substantially accelerated, made more efficient through the use of artificial intelligence that all of a sudden creates a scenario in which there, quite frankly, isn't enough work for you to do if the size of the company's workforce doesn't change, right? Classified editor, right? Classic example. Absolutely. I definitely see it as a big issue. And I think that what's not helping is the dialogue about it and about AI as this thing that's coming in to replace people's jobs. And I know you've heard this as well, but it's the whole Excel accountant scenario where in 1985, Microsoft deployed Microsoft Excel. Now imagine you're an accountant 
that says, no, I will never use this tool. I will never use these macros and algorithms. Like you'd be out of a job, right? And then what would happen after QuickBooks came out and then zero, right? And that moved a lot slower than what we're seeing with basically what are people that are communicators, right? People that are marketers or advertisers or designers or photographers, but people that can tell stories. And so these people now feel threatened. What are they doing? They're using the tools they know how to use to complain about it. And I think it's the wrong approach. We've all seen these tools coming into place for a while now. And that's just the truth, right? We've seen it with Grammarly. We've seen it with Photoshop and Illustrator, where you have more and more power built into the software. And so I think what we really need to do is accept that it's coming and lean into it and embrace the tools. And by by turning the dialogue from, I'm going to get replaced to, I have a whole new set of tools that's going to let me be a lot more productive and better and faster. So I'm going to learn them. I, I think that that's the right way to approach it. Or it's likely that the, my skill set is going to be commoditized in two or three years. Let's say you're a content writer for, I don't know, like IBM, right? Like there's got to be like an army of those guys there, right? You, you may find yourself commoditized by AGI or you're going to have to re- write about 10 times the amount of content. Right. And you decide, and, you know, this is IBM the time to become. Yeah. IBM is a good example, obviously, right? Right. Because, you know, they recently, I mean, they might be the first company that actually explicitly direct, right? The effective AI on their workforce strategy. You know, they're not hire, they're not firing people to replace them with AI. They're simply not filling holes. Hiring them back. Yeah. Right. They, you know, they, you know, they're looking at a scenario in which they might eliminate 30 some odd thousand jobs for a variety of different reasons, but they do point to the fact that AI may account for 8,000 or so of those jobs. And, you know, they describe these, these humans as replaceable by AI. Right. And they point to a lot of back office functions and I don't know whether that PR, man. Yeah, I don't know, right? I don't. It's either bad PR or it's good PR, right? It's bad PR. I, I guess, from, yeah. I mean, if you're right? IBM, then you're eating your own dog food, right? Right. You know, but at the same time, it's also potentially a very convenient way to kind of shift the focus from we've been operating this company poorly through the boom, and now that there's a bust. Not our fault. It's this wave of AI that's coming in that's adding this, like just this layer of efficiency that makes the viability of these positions Painful. in our back office so much lower because now we can do them with technology. You know, and so there, you know, it's almost like, you know, you look at a scenario like that, whether, you know, whatever the real story is, whether it's PR mastery or, you know, or, or not, design yeah. or whatever, or yeah. whatever it is. You know, the, you know, the, the, I guess the angle, you know, from oh, my, sorry, I thought you were sorry. talking skills. I'm like, yeah, PR no, no, guys no. replaced by, no, but thank God, freaking hot air. But, you know, I wonder, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's a scenario in which it's like almost the jobs don't get eliminated. They become extinct. The jobs never exist. It's a hole that never gets filled. It's, you know, and how does that reflect upon the future nature of the workforce? Right. I mean, ask a toll booth worker. Sure. I mean, cause they've been completely replaced. Right. I mean, now they're right. easy pass. So, I mean, this is, ha- this has happened over and over again. It's yeah. a story of technology, right? 
it's just happening faster and more rapidly and on a larger scale now with this particular wave of technology. And I think, again, the skill set is really like, hey, what are we going to do with this particular technology that we're going to make ourselves useful? Are we going to embrace communications or NPR? Are we going to embrace technology instead? Are we going to embrace branding the old-fashioned way? Or are we going to say, hey, let's come up with a concept and throw it into a generator and see what comes back and then iterate up from there? You know, And I know you and I had a little side dialogue about that creativity article that I toss out there, but I think really the the market for people that are fearful of losing their job, regardless of which particular segment of the industry they're in, is about learning how to use the tools to become better, right? Like I'm much less focused on, let's say, for example, creating content for social media and much more focused about how I can make a GPT algorithm work within a, a CRM environment. To me, that's much more interesting because it scales a lot of power and makes things more interesting. What are the ways that I can do that in a manner that creates guidelines so that the content that comes out is decent? There are humans in the loop to approve that content. It gets customized in that kind of one-to-one way that you would love to see AI do, but kind of doesn't seem to really work very well. That kind of thing. That's, that's where to take your mind. You gotta, if you look at the, the fear side of it, you're going to lose. If you look at it like this is an opportunity, you're going to win. You know, I think I agree fundamentally with that, but, you know, I, where I struggle and, you know, I feel almost like, you know, I'm trying to think of a politically or a socially appropriate way to say this because all of the analogies that come to my mind, unfortunately, are mental health analogies, but I, I'm of two minds. It is mental I, health awareness month. And, and I feel I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds and I feel almost like I'm, I'm getting whiplash back and forth. Right? <laughs> I believe everything you said, I agree with and I believe, but then it's also- the devil of the angel. Right, exactly. <laughs> but also I know that it's neither, I mean, it's not realistic for every boat to rise equally, I don't believe, right? You know, and you think about, you know, a scenario in which some people, I agree a hundred percent, some people, the people that embrace this that, that embrace the new skills, that take on those new, new skills, that jettison the old stuff that no longer serves them, the stuff that can be easily automated by machines and rise to the occasion are the people who will win. Absolutely no doubt about 100%. it. 100%. But there isn't a large enough market for 100% of the people to win, right? You know, like here's an, an analogy, right? Because there's a demand side, not just the supply side. So let's say right. you've got a hundred customer service reps in your call center. And, you know, you've got, let's say a 20 minute wait time for the telephone, right? That's terrible for everybody. Now, if that call center implements AI to make call handling and, and, you know, response to customers more efficient, and you now reduce that call time from 20 minutes to two minutes, that's great. And you can probably employ everybody. But if you if you actually get that to zero minutes, what that means is you've got a bunch of reps sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. So now right. you might only need 50 of those 100 reps. And now you've got 50 people who, whether they embrace the technology or not, there's just not enough demand for them unless the company doubles its customer service issues, which is not a scenario any company wants. You don't want twice as many complaints, Right. You know, and I can, and I think about how that might roll out into other areas, right? And there was a, 
there was an article a while back, you know, Dave Matten, who's a sort of technology analyst type, he writes New World, Same Humans. It's a great newsletter, right? And he was thinking about some of this job loss issue. And he was saying, you know, it's one scenario where you, let's say, empower your design department to do design more efficiently and maybe raise the game, right? And actually do design better. And maybe some designers lose their job in that scenario. But but it's because they won't embrace the tools, right? It's sure. The Adobe sure. path where they say, we insist that there's a human in the loop, so to speak, which is AI slang for right. that, but that there's humans involved in the creative process sure, that course. are governing. But if you refuse to use the tools, if you're a Luddite, you're out. Right. Well, that, that, that's undeniable, right? But you've got another factor, which is, you know, let's say you're not a designer, you're a brand manager, and you've got access to that same set of tools. And now it's much easier for you to create a high quality visual output asset, right? And you don't need designers at all anymore. Why not give you- You could be a generalist, brand, right? Right. Give your 10 brand managers the ability to do their own design, which you know they want to do anyway, and just fire the whole design department, right? You know, so there's all these, this is not, what's interesting about this is it's not about the AI per se, right? In a lot of ways, it's about the inclination that leaders in organizations have to always put efficiency and then ultimately profitability ahead of everything else, right? Right. You know, AI can be deployed in a wide variety of ways to benefit people or to harm, right? And as long as there's a mindset of the old model of eat every inch of productivity out of the, of the workforce to eat every bit of profitability out of the business, you're always going to have this tension, right? Where, you know, even if somebody embraces the tools, that doesn't necessarily mean that person is safe, right? Correct. You know, and I, you know, we're going to kind of get into even, I think, you know, as we, as we go through this podcast, we're going to get into some examples, obviously, of things that are happening in the world right now. It's not just theoretical, right? There are real examples. Right. Uh, we can look at of, you know, of, of, you know, either job loss or imminent job loss or, you know, concerns that are fundamentally founded. Right. But one thing about this. And I think that we've seen this happen over the past 15, 20 years with the whole agile lean methodology coming into play is that we know that there's one thing that's going to happen in business is change. Okay. Of and course. it's not just, it's not just technology too, right? Like we've seen it in the past few years, like the CEO at the company I work at, Ravi always talks about this. Like, yeah, you know, we've had COVID, we've had the, the conflict in Europe, we've had inflation. Now we we're having all this fiduciary, shall we say, instability with the small banks, right? On and on and on, major, major business impacts. And, you know, people have had to adapt and adapt and adapt and adapt. I mean, that's why you see businesses using quarterly business plans or even monthly business plans instead of annual business plans. Again, this is a Ravi thing, right? And Ravi's right. That's an agile methodology, right? It's the same thing with this stuff. And, and, and I think that that's what kind of kills me about the whole conversation just a bit. And, and maybe I'm just kind of like beating a dead horse right into the ground. There are examples of it where it's really dangerous. And I know we're like, as you had said, we are about to talk about those, but 
I just, I just really think we have to reframe this argument quite a bit, but go ahead. Let's yeah, go. Let's get into the, the meat. Yeah. So let's, let's start to do a little bit of framing, right? We've been kind of all over the place, kind of riffing and ranting and improvising around all the different angles and the things we're hearing, the seeing and thinking and, and all of that. Right. right. But, you know, so there was a recent Pew study and the study found that 62% of Americans think jobs will be air quotes majorly impacted by AI, whatever that means. Right. But surprisingly, right. they don't, those same people don't believe their own jobs will be significantly impacted by AI. So there's sort of like an other people problem going on here, right? So I guess, you know, the question is like, is this a real worry, right? Do we think that marketing jobs are going to be, you know, kind of on the chopping block? Are knowledge workers going to be majorly impacted? Is it all scaremongering? If it's scaremongering, who actually stands to win, right? Who wins in a world where everyone's afraid AI is going to take their jobs away, right? <laughs> you know, is it, is it just a whole bunch of hype? Is it a reality? You know, these are the kinds of things that I think we want to explore. We're going to explore them in the second half of the show today, and we're going to do it right after this commercial break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Dave Delaney hosts a great podcast called The Nice Podcast. Dave? Tell us what these fine folks will get out of listening. Thanks for asking. Uh, the Nice Podcast is all about helping leaders improve the way they communicate with their team members, with their prospects, with their colleagues, everybody. So that's what it's all about. Amazing. Where can people subscribe? The places that you subscribe to podcasts normally. Um, but you can also find the show at marketingpodcast.net, of course. And you can also visit nicepodcast.co. You heard him, folks. Go subscribe. Okay, so before we get into this big issue about where AI really has marketing jobs in the crosshairs, let's talk about some of the news we've seen. We already talked about IBM, right? And IBM saying that they're going to replace a good portion of their population. I think it was 8,000 jobs with AI or basically not rehire those people. Chegg, I don't know if anybody knows what that company is, but they're basically one of these academic cliff notes type of companies, a digital version of that in the modern era. Just showing you how old I really am. But, you know, Chegg has basically lost 40% of its market value in a week after the CEO came out and said their business is absolutely getting killed by ChatGPT. Big, big news, right? Like here's a, a basically a disruptor that's just destroyed their, their market in many yeah, ways. I, I wonder about that. You know, I don't doubt that AI is having some impact there. I also wonder if that's a little bit of scapegoating. I don't know Chegg all that well. I know... A, I believe at least a big piece of their business is textbook rentals. 
I know they also do other kind of study aids and things like that. I don't know how big the different pieces of the business are, but I know how my 19-year-old college sophomore daughter behaves. And I know semester one of freshman year, she bought and rented textbooks. By semester two, she realized she could get through the entire semester without ever using a textbook. And like, she's not like in gut classes in community colleges. She's, you know, at a legitimate university, right? With a rigorous program, you know, and, you know, so there might be a factor too, that's broader than just AI, which is social cultural change or generational change in totally. the students study. But let's How's give that them foot the, looking? <laughs> let's give them, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt that some impact belongs sure. or blame belongs to artificial intelligence, right? But it's also like Silicon Valley blank, bank blaming the bond crisis. But when right. you do the postmortem on there, yes, that severely weakened them. But yes, they were horrifically run and <laughs> did it to themselves, right? I, I think in that vein too, we've already talked about tech jobs. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 plus or minus 50, depending on your source, say that these jobs have been lost to efficiency in the year of AI. I mean, obviously you could probably tie one to the other, but then you could also look back at the whole COVID post COVID boom, where there was that hiring spree and everybody took anybody that can get in the door. And then right. finally, and I think this one is actually really interesting. And that's the Hollywood writer strike where they're basically yeah, writing for the rights in advance of the AI wave, which is really smart. I mean, that's very baseball player to do very baseball player to do. <laughs> but I, yeah. I mean, like, Hey, we're going to keep our steroids. Let's not get, right. let's not get crazy here. But all things aside, that's a huge one. That's a huge one, right? You know, you see, you probably miss your late night television or I miss my late night TV. Right. And we're seeing the real impact and this sort of loggerheads that you have between, you know, skilled, experienced writers who, you know, the best of whom know they can produce a hit product, right? They know they can produce a phenomenal laugh out loud monologue, or they can write a series that becomes whether it's an award winner or the, a winner in terms of, you know, kind of, you know, public interest and, and viewership. And, you know, they're sitting there and they're looking at, you know, they're kind of sitting across the table from studio heads who are going, eh, a machine can do it. Right. And they're going, and, you know, there's a clear sort of, sort of push and pull between these, you know, these creative talents that are trying to, sort of protect themselves against being sort of diminished or degraded or de-skilled at the hands of technology. And I don't hear them necessarily saying, we're not going to learn Gen AI. I don't hear them saying- but we want to make sure that we keep our jobs, right? Exactly. And we don't want to be reduced to being gig workers or getting hired for a week instead of a season. Or, you know, or whatever, right? And to what extent? Or Isn't the, that the nature of that business anyway, though? That well, it's like, well, I, think, well, I think that's part of the problem yeah. is it over time has increasingly become that way. Now they're essentially, it's being intimated to them that that will only accelerate in a way that's not going to benefit them, right? You know, and I wonder what the impact of the streamers are on this as well. You know, where now we see this much deeper bench of actors and shows and content that's being consumed and that the, the runaway show is not what it used to be right when we right. when we were back in the day again here we go the old men ranting back in our day like a hit show was 100 episodes right that was five seasons now it's right. eight episodes and like a, a, a re-up 
And, and right. That's and, a, yeah. And, and, and for a show that's particularly popular, right, in the olden days when you had several networks and not a hundred different streaming options plus the internet, you know, it was a third of America tuning in, right? A hundred percent. Now, if you get a third of a percent, you're probably in business. Right. You know, so there's all of those dynamics going on. You can understand why the people leading studios are putting pressure on the people that work for those studios. But the question becomes, is it, you know, sort of the, is it the, you know, kind of the, you know, is it, it's almost like business versus creativity in a way, right? In some ways. Yeah. It's also the law of diminishing returns, right? Where you have like there's just so much bad content now that they can get away with publishing crap on there and just have their few wins. Right. Where you know, like right, I look at Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. They're like kind of, four, think, you know, right. yeah, they're saying, let's just bash. Let's turn this into, let's, this is a Netflix hate episode. God freaking hate Netflix. Why am I paying 20 bucks a month for this crap? That's 250 bucks a year. That's like $3,000 in a decade, man. That's nuts for like what HD, super HD, UHD on five devices of crap. That's what it is. I'm sorry. This is a different podcast all of a sudden. (laughs) I guess I had to do it. I couldn't help myself. (laughs) But no, I mean, it's a real question though. Like why, why is it like, why is all of a sudden, here's a question for you. Let me rephrase this. Why is a show that's written with AGI that's guided by a human being that may be really good, suddenly bad? Well, I don't think that's, I mean, the answer is it may not be as a as an entertainment property it may not be that said right. but it's we're bad nowhere for somebody's near, job right we're nowhere near agi yet right and you know i think there's obviously a certain amount of posturing for a studio head to say a machine can write that and expect they're going to get the next head lasso or succession or whatever right you know but you're also talking about a group of people who have spent a career building up a competency around storytelling and creativity. And, you know, it's more goes into creating a hit show or a hit song or, you know, a a photograph that stands the test of time, right. Then the technical aspects, the words on the page, the notes on the staff, the light on the lens, right. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it that speaks to the human condition. Right. And that's a piece of what, a skilled creative is expert in, but then also it's the reality that, you know, there is a, you know, we're, we're in a world for better or for worse when you need to earn your keep, right? And if yeah. the way you earn your keep is being pulled off the table, the rug is being yanked from under your feet. That's a scary thing, right? You know, and the question then becomes, you know, are these, you know, screenwriters, are they, you know, the canary in the coal mine, right? If you can do it with the writers, can you do it with the directors? If you can do it with the directors, can you do it with the videographers? Can you do it to the editors? What about the actors, right? Deep fakes are quickly becoming quick enough, you know, good enough that will we need Robert De Niro or do we have a forever Robert De Niro, right? Which is just, it lives in, he lives in the cloud, right? You know, and if, it's so you know, funny because I've been watching Heat, which is a great movie, <laughs> by the way. That scene with Pacino and, Ah, never mind. Let's let's right. not go so, down another rabbit yeah. hole. So that's where you know that's where a lot of this stuff becomes really you know kind of the real existential crisis. Not the will the robots come and take our job, but like will the man pound us into the ground because he and it typically is a he right at the top of the yeah screen, right can right who owns the, the, leverage here? But the thing with 
this that's missing in the equation is the what you had just brought up, the creative aspects. And, and what I mean by that, it's one thing to have the words on paper, but to also write the guidance that goes along with it, like that wink or that ride look or the motion or the scene setting. When you're dealing with creativity, and this kind of is going to get into our creative episode, maybe this is a little tip off for what's coming. You're going to get from an AGI, a baseline average of what it thinks the right answer is. And a human being is not going to run out of cliche. Like, in fact, there are people that spend their time, cinephiles, right? That watch movie after movie after movie to see that, like, where somebody ripped off one scene from another, right? Like, for example, Mission Impossible 2, where Tom Cruise jumps out of the building, right? I mean, that's a rip off of The Last of the Mohicans, where Daniel Day Lewis jumps out of the waterfall. But if you're not a cinephile, you're not going to understand that. And those are very unusual scenes. What, what an AI is going to do is just probably provide like, oh, it jumps off building, right? Does it have like a different take on it? Does it have that kind of splash of things coming out, the glass mimicking the water, that kind of thing? It's just completely different. And as a result of it, it just doesn't have the same, I guess, tonality to it, even when it is somebody imitating somebody else's art. You know, it's not art. It's not creative. It's just literally functional crap. Yeah. You know, th- although I, you know, there, there's, I'm, I'm kind of, again, this is another thing where I've got the devil and the angel, I suppose, because I'm thinking that's yeah. absolutely right. Right. And, you know, will the typical person be as engaged, whether it's with a, a book, a television show, a piece of music or an ad campaign, if they know it was created by algorithm and it's the kind of the, the basis of averages of everything else that has ever been created, put together in a way potentially to kind of manipulate your emotions or to drive you to action, probably better than even a human could do because it is data based in that way. You know, will that engage an audience and will people want to connect with and consume that kind of content? On the other hand, there's the, you know, sort of the, the, what's tricky, I think, in a lot of ways is, you know, I think back, you know, I've been speaking about digital transformation for right. years and the wide variety of technologies that are disrupting marketplaces and creating new opportunities or whatever. And for years, as I spoke about artificial intelligence, I was saying the same thing everybody is saying now, which is AI won't take your job. A person who knows how to work with AI will take your job. Um, right. I don't know if I originated that, but it certainly predates all the people who are saying it today, you know, but more importantly, you know, when, you know, kind of pressed around, well, what are the jobs or the roles that remain fundamentally human in a world where anything that can be automated will be automated? The first thing to roll off my tongue was typically creativity. Right. Yet when ChatGPT appeared and Midjourney appeared and Stable Diffusion appeared and Dolly too, right? What's the first thing they're coming for? Creativity. Creativity. Right. So and, I think that's falling down. But are they really creative? But they're not quite <laughs> falling. And I think that's the problem. And they've gotten well, so the problem, much better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like even the job. blog. 
yeah, like the blog I published yesterday, I did a mid journey or an image to open it up and it took me five minutes to do that. I mean, it didn't even take that. I don't think. Or you had a photo, I think it was in your story. In in the middle of the story, it was a picture of a man walking past a storefront. Three minutes. looked like 98% of all street photography today, right? (laughs) Yeah. But that's the thing. It's a cliched image, right? With the guy walking in a light beam. I've taken that shot. It's so easy, right? Like there's nothing special about it. And there's, here's the thing. And this is why it's not art. And you know, I can talk about this as a photographer or really, truly creative. There's no expression. There is no Cartier moment where you have, you know, the, the decisive moment where you see this guy's face and you're like, Oh my God, you know, like, Oh my God, this is such a photo. Right. Right. So to me, yeah, it's so, just like, okay, yeah. the AI is programming stuff that this is the way that scene should look based off of the ones that get the most likes on Instagram. And that's what you get like regurgitated pop. Right. You know, cause I mean, that's clearly a limitation to any technology, but certainly artificial intelligence, right? Is that there is no lived experience, right? And there's yep. no sense it, it, it knows what to make. It doesn't know why it makes it right. It no, it just knows that this is the probability of success. Right. So it has, you know, and then you talk about when people talk about, you know, certain, you know, the assist writing assistance, right. Right. You know, that it's math with words. Right. And, you know, it's just completing a sentence based on the probabilities that are embedded and, you know, sort of trained into its neural network. With with Windy Stanford University program, children writing and therefore. Right. (laughs) And, you know, and, you know, the same obviously goes with with the visual stuff. Right. Where like it doesn't know why something is emotionally resonant why it's out it it it, it guesses that it won't be because it puts out four versions right and you choose the one you like the most right so if you think about that that's Mm -hmm. like what a statement that is right like this is our work here's four possible possibilities should we remix it or do you just want to start all over right yeah so but it does get back to the human skill in that getting the good content out of it is prompting it's like being able to understand how these things work, understanding that it's trying to create a probability image, and then understanding what image you want and how it's most likely to, your prompt is most likely to provoke that high probability result that you're trying to seek. Sure. And, and that backward thinking, that backwards thinking process, like this is how this engine works. So this is how I need to engage with it to get what I want is what's going to separate a winner. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I don't believe prompt engineering is a job, but no, I, I don't, believe, I, I don't either. It's, I, I believe on Google. It, it, it is a skill, you know, to your example earlier about Excel, I believe fundamentally prompt engineering is a skill that everybody needs to have, at least for now. Right. You know, again, I believe, and I've said this before that, you know, kind of the fuzziness around what makes for an effective prompt is more a bug than a feature, right? The better these neural networks get in understanding, processing natural language and understanding the intent of that language, the less tricky we're going to need to be in the way we prompt them, which might open the door to a whole new form of prompting. And, you know, so the skill doesn't go away. It's going to have to evolve. Right. Very it quickly. evolves. 
you know, but these, you know, dopey, you know, 99.9 repeating percent of people get it wrong. Here are my surefire ways to become a zillionaire with prompting by my uh, course. That's all crap, right? But we're going to see a lot to, of that. We're going to see a lot of that. Of course. Right? But you do need to build up your skill set and understand how to work with these machines, right? Those are the people that will replace the people that don't. That's for sure. Right. But I also wonder, and to a large extent, though, is that de-skilling the creative or de-skilling the knowledge worker, you know, where, you know, somebody has spent years training under the best in the business, learning how to be a great strategist, a great artist, a great writer or whatever. You know, they went through years of education for it. They've toiled away, worked until midnight in the bowels of some crappy ad agency, pumping out cigarette ads or whatever the hell they were forced to do as a junior creative. And now they're told, well, actually, no, it's really all about the prompting. You're a babysitter for a machine now. Yeah. Is, is that is that better? You know, it's all going to be based on the way you like things. I mean, there are going to be markets for artisans, if you would, I believe, where they do it the old-fashioned way, just like we see in almost every type of technology or thing that's been wiped out, right? Like, you know, look at vinyl records. Yeah, I think we've had that dialogue before. But, you know, I mean, that's just a great example of that. You see that even with clothing, you know, hand-stitched, that's such a luxury on Seville Row and that kind of thinking. So getting things machined versus getting them handmade is always a little context. And those that are artists and are good are going to be able to do it the old fashioned way. But generally speaking, advertising is not about art. Um, right. That's, art the, is, that, that's the art, tricky part. Art, right? like, it, it, a lot of people think it is. Art is part of it, but it's really ultimately about selling. And when it comes right, to selling, businesses will always, always, as you have noted, will always choose profitability because it's ROI. Nobody advertises to, you know, put up a pretty picture, right? Like, you know, this is all about selling Versace. It's about selling, you know, cars. It's about selling lawn services at the micro level with the bad AGI leaflet that's left on your door, but it's still about selling lawn services. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think one thing that, you know, you wanted me to make sure we did talk about is this kind of macro view of, all right, so I am that babysitter for the machine. Am I now thinking of myself as an architect or am I a demand gen pro or am I somebody that prompts the probability engine to provoke the most leads? Am I an SDR or am I somebody that guides outreach to ensure the most amount of touches with the highest probability of success? You know, these types of things where you're not necessarily the creator, but you're making sure everything's working right. You're minding the engine. You're really the guy that's, or the gal that's in the engine room, making sure everything's moving smoothly and that there are no red alerts going on and there's no quality issues. And, and I, unfortunately, I think maybe there's some loss of pride of ownership that comes with that. But yeah, that's the way it's going. That's the way we, we have to think of it. Yeah. I think the other opportunity, potentially the other direction this maybe goes for some people, you've used the word generalist. Maybe that's the right word. Maybe it's not the right word, but I think it's the person, the marketer, since, you know, to speak to our audience who 
understands how all the moving parts fit together. And I think there's an element of generalism in that, but also that are able to kind of glean the uncommon insights that aren't necessarily evident in data, right? You know, machines are really, really good at finding patterns in data. Humans are terrible at that, right? Give us a million data points. We're never going to find the hidden patterns. And that's why, let's say, you know, an AI that's trained to identify breast cancer or other kinds of cancerous tumors can do a better job than the human eye because they're able to identify essentially unseen patterns in the data, right? Then that's far more important and impressive than, you know, can I con somebody into clicking on this ad? But obviously, you know, the softer stuff of not understanding now, how do I tell the patient, right? <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's something that is a uniquely human competency right and yeah. you know, so what are the what are the equivalents of that in marketing right it's being able to identify the truly new the things that have never been done before to find an the insight unique. right an insight that's not readily available in data but your gut just tells you this is the right way to go or the ability to recognize that the past is not a predictor of the future and that the world is going in an unforeseen different direction and let's say shift our value proposition or our positioning to get ahead of that right so it's sort of like it's almost like the strategist on steroids in the same way that it might also be the uber ultra creative who's mm -hmm. just is a genius at coming up with out-of-the-box ideas right so there is an opportunity i believe for these people who kind of rise above to differentiate themselves even more in the face of automation, but it's not going to be an easy path, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think to some extent, like really, let me, let me take a little story angle with this. One of my favorite stories that I've ever read, I love science fiction, loved it, read Asimov, Heinlein, and there was a recent series that was deployed on Apple, which I don't think did that well. It was the Foundation series featuring Isaac Asimov, right? The thing about the Foundation series was this guy, Henry or Harry Seldon, I'm not sure, Henry or Harry, predicted the entire future of history using an algorithm, his, his foundation, right? And Ford, the foundation was all about making sure that the order of history was held in place. And then this book, I think it was the second foundation, there's a character called the mule who's basically an outlier that blows up the whole thing, just destroys it. That the entire algorithm can never predict coming along. And, and it just changes the entire course of history. Just one guy showing up with just one random approach to everything. And the reality is, is that in every field and in every way, that person that has that outlier point of view is going to stand out. And they're going to be very, very successful. And that is particularly true in our field where uniqueness creates separation and separation creates opportunity. Nice. That's a, that's a soundbite, my friend. That is a soundbite. Ooh, ooh, I'm like Tigley. 
I said, uh, my friend, <laughs> why don't we feel like we've been hitting this for a while now? Why don't we kind of get into our brainer and no brainer? And I think we were going to take maybe a little bit of a point counterpoint. And I think both are true. You know, the right. brainer, the, the thing to realize, the thing to take away, the thing to kind of pull from everything we've been yapping about. I think for better or for worse, yes, marketers should be concerned about the speed at which AI is advancing and the ways in which AI will impact our job. I'm not saying we should be despondent. I'm not saying we should just lay back and let it roll right over us. I'm not saying that there is no upside, that there is no opportunity, that there isn't a place for winners in this world. We've been talking about the winners, right? There'll be the people who embrace the tools to do the work-a-day job of a marketer better, more efficient, faster, et cetera potentially focus their time on higher order work. And then there will also be a tremendous opportunity for the, you know, for the the outliers that we're we're talking about here. But I do believe that in the near term, there is going to be a fair amount of pain. I think we're going to see agencies and client-side marketing departments reduce staff using the excuse that AI allows us to be that much more efficient. I think it will right. probably drive talent out of the market. I think it will probably result in a semi-permanent reduction in the overarching marketing workforce, less job opportunity. Um, and I right. think uh, we will recover at some point. The technology is moving too quickly and too many business leaders are bought into the narrative that this can make us more efficient and more profitable that I think the gap between the jobs that come in the future and the jobs that are lost today will be large enough that a lot of people are going to really feel a lot of pain. Ooh, that's hard to follow up with that. Oh, don't worry. Smile. Be happy. Thanks for that. I, I see how you set this thing up. <laughs> so the no-brainer, I would say as well, first of all, let me respond to that brainer in the sense that, yeah, there are going to be companies that are going to totally can everybody go with AI or just have like one poor intern running the AI and they're going to fail. They're going to lose market position. They're not going to take top spot. And I think that people should feel comfortable that the brands of value creativity, if you have one of them, if you work for one of them, stay there, do everything you can to stay there because they're going to succeed. And, and we know this, there's the apples of the world, there are the virgins of the world, there's, you know, the Ralph Laurens and the fashion industry, on and on and on. There's always these brands that value a unique, creative look, whichever, I don't know if Ralph Laurens really that good, but you know what I mean? It, it's just, they stay put. The no-brainer though is, you do have to pay attention to this stuff. Everybody's back in university now. There is no expert, right? And I think you and I talk about that a lot. So we have to have this agile attitude. Don't be, don't be, don't be stupid. Don't stick your heels in the sand or in the dirt and refuse to get on the train because basically you're going to get dragged or you're going to just get thrown off the, the train. And the real trick is to be agile and to play with the tools as much as you possibly can. Like one of the things that I've been painfully remiss on is I have not played with auto G GPT yet. And I think I want to do that because I just want to see how it works. Right. I want to have that education. And this is what we have to really talk about. It's important to train up. It's important to understand where your area of expertise as a human is that no bot can replace 
and then to augment yourself almost like a, a, a kind of like a virtual cyborg with the tools to become even better at that one thing that you're great at. Nice. That's a no brainer. That's that's so to me, that sounds like the future is not preordained. It can go either way. It's what we make of it. And you need to do the right thing, I guess, to paraphrase or steal from even worse, a, a creative genius, Spike Lee, right? Do the right thing, <laughs> you know, which I suppose people are doing to some extent if they're tuning into it's our the shoes. <laughs> if they're tuning into our gibberish and listening to us kind of hash this stuff out and thinking about it for themselves. And that brings us to the end of this show. So no brainer, as we announced last week is part of the marketing podcast network. We are proud to be a member of the network. Thank you to the MPN sponsors, advertisers who support this show and all the other shows on the network. As Jeff said at the outset, if you are a YouTube viewer, be sure to subscribe to the channel. Leave us comments. Be sure to smash that like button. Subscribe or follow on Apple, on Spotify, or any place else that you listen to your podcast. Be sure to give us a rating or a review there as well. Again, if you five stars only, five (laughs) or six, let's make it a good old mid journey hand of support. And and, uh, do show your support. We do want your honest feedback. We'd love to hear what you're thinking. And we'd love to know that if you enjoy what we do, that you will do our job, frankly, and help others find us so that they can enjoy what we're doing as well. Last but not least, show notes with all of the resources, links, gibberish, and chapters, and all the good stuff to help you find your way around this program can always be found at nobrainerpodcast.com. You can also email us at hello at nobrainerpodcast.com. If you have questions, suggestions, complaints, or simply want to know what Jeff is wearing tomorrow. So Black t-shirt. It's pretty easy to know. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I enjoyed the conversation, Jeff. I always enjoy talking with you, Greg. Always. <laughs> and we're going to... And we're going to stop talking to each other right now, at least for a little bit. Back in a couple of weeks with another episode. We will see you next time on No Brainer. Have a great week. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Dave Delaney hosts a great podcast called The Nice Podcast. Dave? Tell us what these fine folks will get out of listening. Thanks for asking. Uh, the Nice Podcast is all about helping leaders improve the way they communicate with their team members, with their prospects, with their colleagues, everybody. So that's what it's all about. Amazing. Where can people subscribe? The places that you subscribe to podcasts normally. Um, but you can also find the show at marketingpodcast.net, of course. And you can also visit nicepodcast.co. You heard him, folks. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.